0: Good morning, everybody. I just want to reflect for a second on the fact that Stan suggested that you invite people to youth group by telling them there's a weird guy there who wants to hang out with you. <laughs> but my favorite thing about that is it's 100% accurate. So while I can speak to the veracity of what Stan said, I cannot recommend that method of evangelism. It's a weird guy there who wants to hang out with you. And a couple other weird guys who don't want to hang out with you, but they're there too. Uh, Hey, welcome, you guys. My name's Sam. So happy to see all of you. We are in the third week of our Jonah series, and I hope that you guys who are tracking with the series are enjoying this book as much as we are. I told First Service, around the office, it's like there are just the the number of nerdy Jonah conversations happening. It's at an all-time high. I mean, like someone's sticking their head in someone else's office going like, did you notice that in Jonah? Such this book is amazing and it's deep and it's brilliant and and that's the reason we're so excited to share it with you guys because it's been kind of typecast to some extent as a children's story about a big fish and here's the thing today we're done with the fish and he was there yesterday gone one chapter one tiny part of the story and so this this story is brilliant and deep and in our journey together to kind of try to to some extent remove it from the, the children's story context and recognize that man to really understand what's going on in the story. You have to be an adult. Now now it's a brilliant story, and like many brilliant stories, there are layers that, are, that kids can understand and grab hold to, but man, to get to the depth of what the story is doing, you gotta be an adult and you've gotta be paying attention. So, we're in week three and we're in chapter three. And um, We're going to do some kind of recapping of stuff that's come so far, because this is a short book. It's four chapters long, and the chapters are short, and it's, it's meant to kind of be taken in all at once. And so I'm going to kind of recap just really briefly, but I'm going to skip a bunch of really exciting stuff that's going to tempt me to slow down, but I won't. So if you've missed weeks, please, please, please go listen to the podcast. There is so much to this book. We've talked every week about the fact that Jonah, in its style, it fits within the prophetic books but it is an incredibly unusual prophetic book and an incredibly unusual prophet. We've talked about how stylistically, the way the story is told uses elements of satire, which is this form of storytelling that involves using things like irony and hyperbole and a bunch of other rhetorical devices, double entendre, to kind of get behind the front gates of your mind and sort of critique you without you even knowing it. The best versions of this in our culture Uh, Well, I shouldn't say the best. The most prominent version of this in our culture is Saturday Night Live, which many of us are familiar with. We know it's it's had its better eras and its worse eras, and depending on what generation you're from, you probably have a really strong opinion about when the best time in Saturday Night Live's history was, but we all know it's not right now. So that's 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 the one thing I can say about SNL. But you understand how that works. When SNL is doing its job right, you're watching someone who's depicting something that's pretty close to reality but highlighting things and exaggerating things in a way that makes you laugh, first at the thing you're looking at, and then if satire's done right, it makes you realize, I'm actually laughing at me, because I'm like that. And so that's what Jonah's doing. It's telling the story of this prophet Jonah, a true story about this man who we know existed in the reign of Jeroboam II. We talked about that in the first week. But the way it's being told is satirical. We'll see some of that today. The book starts like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Who remembers Jonah, what Jonah means? Dove, yeah. What does his father's name Amittai mean? Anybody remember? That's a harder one. It means faithful or the faithful one. So you're introduced right out of the gate. The word of the Lord came to Dove, the son of faithful, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Now, so far, so good. This is how a lot of prophet stories start. If you read the prophetic books, there's usually a call, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. But here's a key difference. In those books, the prophet does what God says. And here, in verse three of chapter one, it says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We talked last week and the week before about how Tarshish isn't just not Nineveh. God's sending him to Nineveh, and Jonah flees as far as humanly possible in the ancient world in the opposite direction. So he's supposed to go east to Nineveh, and instead he goes as far west as human beings went at that point in history. So he is fleeing, and he's not just fleeing from you know, his mission, he's fleeing, it says, from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's a couple words that are introduced in this first set of verses that are, are really Amazing rhetorical devices that the author uses. They're words that he uses over and over and over again, and we'll see a little bit of it today, so I want to introduce them to you. The first one is the word that's translated great, as in arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. That word great is the Hebrew word gadol, and it means just what it sounds like. It means great, big, impressive, and absolutely everything in Jonah is gadol. The number of times this word is used, I should have counted, but the number of times this word is used is just ridiculous. Everything is great. The city of Nineveh is great. The storm that comes on the the sailors is great. The fear that the sailors have is great. The fish that God appoints to swallow Jonah is great. Everything's great. Everything's larger than life in this story. The second word is the word evil. In Hebrew, the word is ra'ah, and it's a bigger, more flexible word than our English word evil. When we say evil in English, we necessarily mean like a moral element. So evil doesn't just mean bad, it means morally bad. It means you're doing something that is wrong, that's an affront to God. Now the Hebrew word ra'ah can mean that, but it often means bad in a more general sense. And one way you see it translated in the Hebrew Bible a lot is uh, disaster, catastrophe. When something terrible happens, it's described as ra'ah. And so as you're reading through this book, you'll see the author, he'll, he'll do it today in chapter three, you'll see the author use the word with both meanings in a way that's supposed to draw you in. So Jonah is gives, gives, given a clear command, go to Nineveh, there's great Ra'ah there, there's Ra'ah in that great city, and Jonah flees as far as he can in the opposite direction. Now week one, we saw this story of Jonah and the sailors, he gets on a boat bound for Tarshish, he doesn't tell them when he gets on the boat that he's fleeing from the very God who he believes made the ocean and is in control of it. They find that out later. But God sends a storm, and it's like Jonah has brought Ra'ah with him. The thing that he's supposed to go denounce in Nineveh when he flees the presence of God, this, this disaster follows him. And so this great storm comes upon the boat, and the sailors are depicted as being very concerned about it. They're worried about the lives of everybody who's on board. But who's not worried? It's not a trick question. Who's not worried about what's happening? Jonah. What's Jonah doing? He's sleeping below decks in the boat. And so the sailor, the pagan sailor, has to come wake him up and make sure that he knows what's going on. It says, and they find out that it's actually Jonah's fault. And where any reasonable person would say, all right, throw him in the water right now, the author goes out of his way to tell you that these pagan sailors row hard, as hard as they can, to try to get out of the storm without throwing Jonah in the water. But they can't. And so they end up Tossing Jonah into the water, the storm goes away, and this incredible thing happens. These pagan sailors, who we already knew had been crying out to all these different gods that they worshipped, they believe God, it says, but they respond not just with an intellectual belief, but with belief and action together. It says they make vows to Yahweh, and they make sacrifices to him. So Jonah has brought this great disaster on the sailors, but the result of that disaster and their deliverance from it is actually these pagan sailors responding to God with belief and action. They totally show up Jonah, and that's kind of the point of that story. And it's important to keep that story in mind because the story we're gonna read today mirrors it. So Jonah gets thrown into the water and God appoints a gadol fish to come up and swallow him and bring him down, 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 deep below the sea to the bottom of the ocean. And when he's there, at the bottom of the ocean, in the belly of the beast, Jonah recognizes his need for God, and he repents and cries out to him. And so God has the fish um, vomit Jonah back out on dry land. By the way, it's just kind of a funny side note. The Hebrew word for vomit is ka, and it's supposed to sound like the sound you make when you're vomiting. It's one of those onomatopoetic words. So I don't know if you guys make a ka sound when you vomit, but that's what the fish does. The fish haws Jonah out, and that's kind of what that, that word evokes, But it remains to be seen if Jonah has had a real change of heart, if the kind of contrition that we're seeing when he's in the belly of the whale or the great fish is actually genuine. So now we're caught up. This is Jonah 3.1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is meant to parallel the first episode, God's first call to Jonah. He says, arise again which is not only the thing that God said to Jonah initially, it's actually also the thing that the sailor said to Jonah when he was sleeping in the boat. Arise and go to Nineveh, that godol city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. He doesn't say what that message is, but we know from chapter one that the thing that God is concerned about with Nineveh is that their evil has come up before him. It's an evil city, a ra'ah place. Now, we talked about this in the first week a little bit, but just I want to briefly remind you of what Nineveh is in the mind of Jonah's readers, because it's hard for us to connect to. But Nineveh is the capital city of a country called Assyria. And Assyria, at the time that um, Jonah is being read and the story is being told, is the biggest, baddest, monster nation that you can imagine. Nineveh... um, They are cruel, they're merciless, they're brutal, and they are brilliant at warfare. So brilliant that their warfare tactics are actually still studied today. We have this incredible evidence of the things they did because archeology span has uncovered um, a variety of inscriptions from them, reliefs, carvings, and walls that show what they do. I'll just show these really briefly because even even though they're ancient, they're pretty disturbing. Um, This is an image from around this period, the Neo-Assyrian period, that shows Assyrian soldiers skinning opponents alive This is another relief that shows enemy opponents being put on stakes. And this is just like a small sampling. They were known as militarily brilliant and violent and cruel. They're going to later, after the time of Jonah, they're going to come and wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel permanently. So when Jonah is sent to Nineveh, this is hard for us to connect to as modern people, but the people hearing this story, Jonah's fellow Israelites, know Nineveh is where the monsters are. If if there's an us and them in your mind, this is as them as it gets. These are the bad guys. These are evil people. And the difference is this time, Jonah goes. It says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly gadol city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Few crazy things here. Um, When it says that Nineveh is a, a three days journey across, again, as modern people, we don't know what that means. Picture the biggest city imaginable. I mean, it is unbelievably great what they are describing. An exceedingly good old city. But here's the important thing. It says to get across Nineveh takes three days. How many days does Jonah go in? One. One day. Now, he announces a judgment that's coming in 40 days, but it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. That's supposed to seem weird. So it's this huge city, takes three days to walk across it. Jonah only goes in one day. And that's not the only kind of small thing about the way he's pronouncing this. His sermon here, in English, it's eight words. In Hebrew, it's even shorter. In Hebrew, that's a five-word sermon. And that's, again, supposed to strike you as odd. And if you've read the prophets, then you know that's odd. How many of you have read a prophetic book and seen when they pronounce oracles against nations? Are they five words long usually? No, you, you start to read Isaiah pronouncing judgment on Babylon, and you will be like shh, shh, shh. There's a lot to say, a lot more detail than this. Jonah gives a five-word sermon. You guys right now are going like, five-word sermon actually sounds pretty good right now to me. I mean, we could try it, just see how it, see how it works. Not today. Five-word sermon, and he leaves out some incredibly crucial things that prophets do not leave out of their sermons almost ever. He says, what's going to happen? And he says, when it's going to happen. City of Nineveh is going to be overthrown. It's going to be in 40 days. What does it? he say? There's no who and there's no why. Now, a prophet of Yahweh, the God of Israel, gives a message and doesn't even mention Yahweh's name once, doesn't say who's going to overthrow the city, Doesn't say why it's going to happen. This is significant. Doesn't say what the Ninevites could maybe do to prevent it from happening. All he says is, hey, 40 days, you guys are getting overthrown. That's the whole sermon. And so you're meant, I believe, to see Jonah's attempt as very unusual for a prophet. He doesn't cover the entire city, and he doesn't even give a full-length oracle of judgment. Now, the text, as is often the case in the Old Testament especially doesn't tell you if Jonah's being half-hearted on purpose. doesn't tell you if Jonah's trying to kind of like sabotage what's going on or if he's like just doing the bare minimum to get by. It doesn't say. That's how Hebrew literature works. You're supposed to ask that question. You're supposed to ask yourself, is that consistent with with Jonah's character so far? Does it seem like something that Jonah would do? If you're like me, you go, yeah, that sort of seems like Jonah. But let it draw you in because it doesn't tell you. It doesn't say And he did this because he still didn't really want to obey God. (laughs) You're supposed to read it, be drawn in, ask questions about Jonah's motives. Why is he doing this? Here's what Nineveh does in response. Stunning. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The people of Nineveh here five-word sermon that only makes it to, you know, approximately a third of the city. And everyone, that's what greatest of them to the least of them means, everyone in the city repents. And they don't just believe, this is key, it says they believe God and then they embody their belief with action. There is belief and action on display here. They believe God and they respond with these genuine acts of contrition. Fasting, they don't eat, they deny themselves food. Sackcloth, they put on these symbols of humility and mourning. Who does this sound like to you? It sounds like the sailors in the second episode of the story. They see God's mercy by when he removes the storm, and they respond with belief and action. Now, here's the other question Who does this not sound like? What did it take for Jonah to repent? Is it like a five-word sermon? God just said like, hey, repent. And Jonah's like, okay, what what had to happen? Is the most famous part of the story. He had to get thrown into a storm-tossed ocean, swallowed by a giant fish appointed by God and brought down to the very depths in the belly of the beast. That's what it takes for Jonah to be like, okay, okay. The people of Nineveh, five-word, and by the way, again, people of Nineveh, we're talking about, the worst people on earth, if you're the original hearers of the story, the worst people on earth get a five word, unclear sermon, and they fully and completely repent, every single one of them. It gets crazier than that. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. off of what your expectations would have been of these characters, like the story's been doing at every step. The pagan sailors repent, Jonah doesn't. The people of Nineveh repent, Jonah doesn't. And then you get to the king of Nineveh, who is like, you know, the final boss in the video game. This is Darth Vader, this is the the big bad guy, the king of the capital of Assyria. And you would expect that if he heard about this rabble rousing, there's a Jewish prophet walking around in the city, getting people to fast, and like they're not showing up for work, and they're all mourning you'd expect him to go, get that guy in here, and we're gonna teach him a lesson. It's probably gonna involve skinning him alive or something like that. Instead, the king of Nineveh, who as far as we know, doesn't even hear the message from Jonah, but he gets word, It says word reached him. He gets up from his throne, a symbol of his authority and sovereignty. Takes off his royal robe, another symbol of his authority and majesty and sits in dust and covers himself with sackcloth. He takes off, puts away his symbols of authority and power and puts upon himself symbols of humility and contrition. Shocking, unspeakably shocking. It's, again, it's, it's hard for us reading this to be as stunned as you are supposed to be when you read this. And then he makes a decree where he says, not only are the least to the greatest people not going to eat and have sackcloth on, even the animals aren't going to. And you're supposed to kind of chuckle at that. That's like over the top, right? He goes, it's not enough for the people. We're going to put sackcloth on like old Bessie the cow and not let them eat either. And here's what he's hoping will happen. He says, let everyone turn. This is a really powerful word in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word shuv. And it means exactly what it says here. Usually or often it's translated repent. It's where the word repentance finds its original roots. And it means to turn. It's a walking term. If you're walking and you realize you're going the wrong direction, you shuv, you turn the other way. And so he's not calling for people to just feel bad. That's why it's cool that it says turn and not repent because we sometimes get those things mixed up. But he says, let everyone shuv, turn away from his ra'ah. Who knows? God may shuv and relent and shoo from his fierce anger twice. He says, maybe if we turn from our evil, God will turn from the disaster he's bringing on the city. It's interesting, he says, who knows? Why doesn't he know? Because Jonah didn't tell him. Jonah gave such an oversimplified tiny message that the king doesn't even know if this will work. But he's telling everyone in Nineveh, from the greatest to the least, even the animals, turn from your evil. There's one more verse in this chapter that talks about God's response to all of this. And it's a bit of a cliffhanger because it's not until chapter four and next week that we get the kind of final summing up of Jonah's story. But I want to pause for a little bit here and talk about something that's, that's kind of been hanging over this whole story and it's really dramatic here. Um, and, and many of us are not even aware of it because we're so accustomed to avoiding thinking about it. The king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his Fierce anger, so that we may not perish. Why are all the people of Nineveh responding so dramatically? Why is the king so shaken up that all of this stuff? He's taking off his robe, he's getting down from his throne. The king of the city is sitting in ashes with sackcloth on. Why? Because they're terrified of the fierce anger of God. The Bible has a word. That it uses consistently to talk about God's fierce anger, the anger that God experiences as a result of, of evil and injustice in the world, and they call it his wrath. And here's the truth: we, as modern Western Christians, we do not like to talk or think about this. In our our particular place in the world and our particular time that we live in, we do not like to talk about the wrath of God, it makes us extremely uncomfortable, most of us. Now, there's a small subset of people who like talking about it too much. The sermon's not for you. We'll have a different sermon at some point. I'm, not, I'm, I'm only half joking. Some of us, some of us are, are highlighting this at the expense of other things about God. But that's not the problem for most of us. Most of us want to talk exclusively about the love of God, which, of course, it goes without saying, we want to focus on and talk about and lift up. The Bible does that. It's an essential part of our story that God is loving. But we treat wrath like it's this dichotomous aspect of God's character from his love. Like like there's God's love, and we like that, we want to talk about that, and then there's God's wrath, and it's kind of in opposition to God's love, and so we're going to ignore that and pretend that one doesn't exist. But you guys, the Bible does not do that. Do you notice? God's angry in this story. We're so used to kind of like glossing over it, I'll bet the majority of us didn't even notice that God has fierce anger against the evil and violence that he sees in Nineveh. Here's the thing, this is the first thing we have to understand about God's wrath, and it is absolutely crucial to get this as a Christian. Not just so that you can explain it right, but so that you, in your soul, can understand rightly who you are. God's wrath and God's love are not two opposite aspects of his character. They're not. God's wrath is an absolutely essential outgrowth of his love wrath against evil, sin, and injustice has to exist if God's truly loving. We'll give a weak, small, human example. Imagine a parent. If you're a parent, you can imagine yourself who sees his or her child, and the child is being hurt in some way or being threatened in some way, being manipulated, being bullied. Something terrible is happening to or about to happen to this child would the loving parent look at that situation and say, you know what, I kind of love everybody. And so I'm just gonna let this one happen because I, like, I'm not gonna let this make me upset because I love these guys. That, would, would, would that be love? That's like a parody of love, right? And we're talking about like, your human reaction that is imperfect and flawed in a million different ways. But I, as a parent, as an imperfect father, someone threatens my daughter, It's not just like, I'm going to act because that's the loving thing. There is a welling up of righteous anger. Now, it's easy for that to run rampant and become a problem, of course, especially for human beings. But could you imagine a loving being who is powerful, who sees absolutely everything that happens on earth, and is not moved to anger by what he sees? Could a loving God not have wrath? Like I said, it's harder for us kind of in the modern Western world to connect to this aspect of God. And I I think part of that is because in general, the easier your life is, the less you care about justice, the less desire you have for justice, the less you want an all-powerful being to be angry about what you see happening in the world. Now... This is a big room, and so I don't want to broad brush and say that everyone in here's life is easy. I know that there is a lot of suffering in a room this size, and some of you have suffered horrifically and are suffering. But in general, compared to most of human beings, for most of human history, and a lot of human beings who are alive today in different parts of the world, man, our life is easy. I've never in my life had to wonder if my daughter would eat. Never. Probably never will but I have friends in other parts of the world who wonder that every single day. And it's not just like an accident of birth that they're not near food. No, they live in countries where corrupt governments are squeezing every dollar available for themselves. And there are a few rich people taking advantage of all the poor people. So imagine that you're you're a woman who spends all day, literally, eight to 12 hours with your daughters walking on dangerous, (laughs) rebel-ridden pathways to try to get a bucket of dirty water for that day for your family that will probably still make you sick. This is the reality of what human evil and rebellion has wrought on creation, on humanity. If you've had your child taken from you so that they can either be sold into the commercial sex trade or so that they can be brainwashed and put into a violent militia when they're five, six, seven years old to commit Horrible acts of violence? Do you think that you look at that and say, I just want a God who's loving and doesn't care about this kind of thing and can overlook people's mistakes? Or do you want a God who can see every act of human evil and says, I'm not missing this and I'm not going to let it go forever? A loving God will, will have wrath, period. Fortunately, it's not the end of the story. Because here's the second piece. First thing is is coming to grips with the fact that that God's love and God's wrath are actually two sides of the same coin. The second piece is figuring out how you and I fit into that story. Because we have a natural kind of proclivity towards wanting wrath and justice for people who have wronged us, people out there, and wanting mercy and grace and forgiveness for ourselves. There's actually, this is not like just something I'm making up. Psychologists have studied this in depth. It's called the self-favoring bias. It's exactly what it sounds like. Here's how it works. If you get a good grade on a test. Why did you get a good grade on the test? Oh, cuz I studied hard. I know the material really well and I'm really really smart. That's why I got a good grade on the test. But if you get a, good, a bad grade, why would you get a bad grade? The test was too hard. This teacher's not fair. He didn't do he didn't even cover this part and no one could pass this test. Right? You guys have done this in a million areas. Your team wins a sports game. See how, You can tell how athletic I am by the fact that I called it a sports game, by the way. Um, your team wins a sporting game, and you go, oh man, we practiced harder, we're stronger, we're better at this game, awesome. You lose, the refs could not make a good call to save their lives. You guys do this when you're watching sports. Your team wins, my team's the best. They lose, oh, it's the, you know, it's the refs. We all do this, you get a job, I'm, I'm qualified. In fact, I'm overqualified, and I killed that interview. You don't get the job. Oh, you know what? I, prob- they, I didn't get enough sleep last night. At my best, I could, I'm too good for this job. They probably thought that I have too many qualifications. We do this all the time. We favor ourselves and think, no, we didn't do anything wrong. Everybody else are the ones who have the problem. If you don't believe this about yourself, by the way, go drive your car for five minutes and watch how you respond to the drivers around you. Uh, Have you ever seen, I saw this the other day, and so it's fresh in my mind, have you ever seen someone who's driving and they do something dangerous and illegal and almost cause an accident and someone honks at that person and the person who did the horrible thing and got honked at looks at the honker and is like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Some of you guys are like, I did see that happen. I saw it in my rearview mirror happen on my way to church this morning. If you make a mistake, you cut somebody off, you go, oh, sorry, be, forgive me, I never do this. But if someone cuts you off, you're like, are you kidding me? This guy can't even wait five seconds for me to, you know what I mean? The most, the most like self-incriminating example I can think of, because my wife has, has pointed it out, and she's right, is that my attitude when I'm a driver compared to my attitude when I'm a pedestrian is night and day. So I'm a pedestrian, if I'm walking, I'm like, hey, pedestrians always have the right of way. So if I step in the road, That car, I don't care how fast they're going, they slam on the brakes and let me cross, because pedestrians always have the right of way. But if I'm the guy in the car, and someone steps out in the road, I'm like, I had to slam on my brakes just to not hit you. Don't you know how big and heavy and dangerous my car is? Couldn't you just wait five seconds for me to go by? You know what I'm saying? When you have done wrong, there's always an excuse. When someone else wrongs you, they're evil, they're horrible, they should be punished. Talking about like small, kind of silly examples like driving your car, right? But look inside yourself. We all do this with hugely important things too. We don't manipulate people, we don't mistreat people. They do that to us. But we're always misunderstood. Or we just, you know, we didn't have time to explain ourselves right, but we're not being evil. Here's the truth if you are honest with yourself, which some percentage of us in the room are prepared to do. And don't, don't kick yourself if, if you're not there. If you're honest with yourself, you know that in big ways and in small ways, in daily ways and in cosmic ways, you have wronged other people. You're a contributor to the horrific injustice that you see in the world around you. You've lied to people. You've manipulated people. You've bought things that you know are a little too cheap and probably somebody's not getting paid enough to make it for you. Some of you, some of you are thinking of things that are, are massive, terrible things <laughs> that you've never come to terms with, never talked to someone about. As a side note, today might be the day to do that. G.K. Chesterton is a really amazing author and thinker, British um, apologist, uh, The story goes, at least, that he he was responding to this prompt that a big newspaper in London put out that wanted philosophers and authors to write something about what was wrong with the world. The prompt is, what's wrong with the world? And so authors and philosophers put in these big, brilliant treatises on evil and injustice and what's wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton wrote this, dear sirs, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton, because he gets it. He gets that, that good and evil is not the difference between me and you. It, it's right inside of me. That I can't look at the injustice and horrors and evils that happen in the world around me honestly and not realize I am a part of the problem. The things I do contribute to the brokenness of the world in big ways and in small ways. And so you find yourself in this, this really horrible position where, on the one hand, a truly loving, powerful God is going to have wrath against injustice and we want him to and we need him to. And yet, when that God focuses that wrath and brings judgment, you and me, we're gonna be right in the middle of the crosshairs. See, there's, if there's no justice, there's no hope for the world. But if there is justice, there's no hope for me. So here's what God does when he sees the repentance in Nineveh. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Really cool wordplay here, devil entendre, which is all over this book. says, when God saw what they did, how they shoo from their ra'ah, God relented of the ra'ah that he had said he would do to them. Same word, evil in one sense, disaster in the other. It's really brilliant. God sees this over-the-top contrition, which again is being portrayed in this just amazingly comprehensive way throughout the entire city of Nineveh. He doesn't bring the wrath because the evil is stopped. And so you you go, wow, that's impressive. That's incredible. They, by the force and authenticity of their repentance, turned this evil disaster, or not evil, this disaster, -ah, that was gonna come upon the city, And so you you should stop and go like, man, who's actually the good example in this story? Like so far, Jonah, not a great role model, right? But the king of Nineveh, that guy's incredible. This is back to his reaction. It said, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The rest of the city does the same thing, and as a result, God turns away from his wrath. The king of Nineveh, the main bad guy, puts aside his symbols of authority. And as a result of that, the the lives of the city are saved. They all follow suit. Here's the thing. Does Assyria, at this point in history, suddenly change permanently into like a good group of people who only do good in the world, and they march around the ancient Near East like doing humanitarian projects for other people groups? Any students of history in the room? Is that what Assyria does? They give up their enemy skinning ways and become well drillers all over the ancient Near East. No. The timeline, you can't exactly put it together, but we know um, that after the time of Jonah, Nineveh is going to go and destroy the northern kingdom Israel. They're going to just continue to pillage and enact horrible violence on the ancient Near Eastern world until they are eventually destroyed by Babylon. Disaster doesn't come right now, but it, it comes. Babylon's going to sweep through and destroy Assyria in a hundred years, give or take, from when this story is set. And that again should sound kind of familiar, because you might have moments of, of repentance, and like the king of Nineveh has this extravagant one where he takes off all the symbols of authority and sits in the dust. We can't match that. But we, like he probably did, or a king after him, put the robe back on and climb back on the throne. And so you see this incredible picture of how this act of repentance and humility and submission averts disaster, but it's temporary in this case. So you're right back where you started in kind of the ultimate sense. That man, a good God can't look at evil and not act. And yet if I'm part of the problem, how can I escape his wrath when it comes? But the king of Nineveh provides us with this unbelievable picture, just a picture, just a glimpse of a better king that's coming later. As Christians, we believe that God sees the injustice and the horrors of human evil and he cares, he acts, he is moved, he has wrath that builds up. This is described all over the Bible. And yet, because of his great love for humanity, for you and me, he provides a way that he might be just and loving, that he might be just and yet provide an escape. And what it looks like is this. It looks like the king of kings setting aside his royalty, getting down from his throne, taking off his robes, sitting in the sackcloth and ashes of humanity and earth, and dying the death that the rebellious, evil people who are part of the problem should have died, but he didn't deserve. The king of Nineveh, he gets off his throne and takes off his robe to save his life. The king of kings gets off his robe and off his throne to save your life. And in this character, we see this picture of a king who by his humility saves his people and just know, man, 700 or so years after that, the true king of kings is going to do this on a scale unimaginable. Son of God, steps down from the riches and authority and glory that he deserves, dies the death that the unjust and evil people like you and me should die, and in doing so provides a way for us to not be destroyed by God's wrath, but to be forgiven, brought into the family of God. Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, he's talking about generosity and, and encouraging the Corinthian church to be more generous. But he says this incredible thing about Jesus. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. not that a beautiful picture of the reversal that happens in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? The King of Kings, worthy of all riches, honor, and glory, sets all of it aside so that you and I might be brought into the family of God. And so we respond as the ushers pass out communion. By the way, if if you're not a Christian today, um, you are more than welcome to just let that pass. You don't have to feel weird about it. This is something Christians do together. Um, We respond in the way modeled by both the pagan sailors. And by the people of Nineveh and by the king of Nineveh, not just with feeling bad or feeling guilty. In fact, feeling feelings of guilt is just supposed to serve as a prompt to push you towards God. But ultimately, what we do is we respond with belief and action. The soldiers see the power, or the sailors rather, see the power and mercy of God, and they respond by believing and by making vows and sacrifices. The people of Nineveh hear about the power and wrath of God, and they respond by humbling themselves, almost beyond belief, including the king. And so those of you who've been Christians for a long time, you know that what that looks like in practice is this ongoing process of day after day enacting your beliefs better and better. And it's two steps forward and one step back. You still make mistakes, but you're growing. That's what putting action to your belief looks like. But the amazing thing about this meal we're about to share And part of the reason why the Christian church has done this from the beginning for 2,000 years is because this gives us an opportunity to, in not a small way, enact our faith in Jesus, to pledge allegiance, to say, the King, Jesus Christ, who sets aside robe and throne to die for me, I trust in him. And these elements of bread, which Jesus called his flesh, and juice, in our case, or wine, that that represents his blood. These things allow us this incredible moment where we can stretch backwards in time to the sacrificial death of Jesus, to when he put aside robe and throne to die for you. And it allows us to stretch forward in history to the day when you and I will be given a new and clean robe that we don't deserve and didn't earn for ourselves. Why does Jesus take off his robe? So he can give you one. And that's incredibly good news. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we take this together. The night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. We talked about this in our Moses series. He was supposed to say this is the bread of our affliction, recalling the slavery in Egypt. But instead he said this is my body, as if to say I'll take the affliction. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, gave thanks, and said, this is my blood poured out for you for a new covenant. You guys, I hope you recognize there is a new deal on the table. People who are a part of the problem, people who have sinned, who have made mistakes, who have wronged neighbor and God, have a way to not remain God's enemies, but to come into his presence as children, sons and daughters, friends, not just conquered enemies. And so the blood spilled by Jesus on your behalf allows you that place in his family. Father, I, um, I knew all week that it, it is a weighty thing to speak of your wrath. And I, um, I thought in first service, and I, and I think it again now, Lord, of how, how many times the thought of your wrath has comforted me when I've been with our partners and my friends in the developing world, in Africa and Cambodia and Haiti, and I've seen the the horrific injustices that people are suffering, and I've seen people wronged and mistreated and broken, and I've gone back to my bed and I have wept, and the thing that has comforted me is knowing that I serve a God who sees this, who is not turning a blind eye to suffering, who's not turning a blind eye to evil and injustice, who will not let it go on forever. And yet a God who has provided a means of mercy, of forgiveness for people who, though we deserve to be destroyed, can be reconciled to you and brought into your family. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in the room right now um, who has never recognized that, who has never come to, to be your child, if there are people who are recognizing their own wickedness and knowing that that they need to be rescued, Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart, that they would come to speak to someone here, you would call them into your family, that everyone in this room would know that the doors of salvation are open because of what your son accomplished 2,000 years ago. Let us sing of his glory and goodness and help us to remember that you are a good and loving king. Thank you for your humility, for setting aside your robes that I might have one. In Jesus' name, amen.